and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Alex Hyde-White. Now, Alex might be best known for a movie that never officially came out. He played Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic, in Roger Corman's Fantastic Four movie. That was supposed to be released in 1994 and never did. There are plenty of stories and conspiracy theories as to why it never was released. We talk about that. There's also a fantastic documentary about the making of the movie and the aftermath called Doomed. And I'm trying to get as many cast members on from that movie to discuss it. And Alex is the first. Alex has had a fantastic, no pun intended, career nonetheless. He played young Henry, Indiana Jones' father, played by Sean Connery in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He was a pretty woman. Catch Me If You Can. And a ton of other great movies and TV projects as well. Right now, he started his own audio book production company called Punch Audio, which is very interesting. I've listened to many of the books that Alex has produced. Very intriguing guy, very nice guy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. So, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. So before we kind of like look back and talk about what you're doing, um, what was like the last two years like for you? I mean, you know, we're almost out of this pandemic and everyone has like a pandemic story. So what was yours? You know, it hit home for me in the um, spring. Was it March of, um, of 20 when they started canceling tennis tournaments and okay. a big event out there? I'd gone up to the Sundance Film Festival in January, uh, which I, I love. And it's a nice drive from where I live in Santa Monica. I, you know, I go a lot, have a timeshare during the festival weeks. And, you know, it was going strong. It was, it was really nice. That was the end of January. And I don't think people were, you know, it was just starting to creep through in that January. And people get sick at Sundance all the time. I mean, you come back with a chest cold every once in a while. Right. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, a lot of things that have been going around long before this uh, COVID virus. But soon after that, that was like the last um, cultural event, you know, almost in Hollywood was the Sundance right. Film Festival. And uh, six weeks later in March, the uh, governor, Newsom um, was, I think, you know, just went immediately to lockdown after they started canceling um, the uh, you know the the tennis tournament in in uh, Indian Wells, and you know then spring training happened, and that was Arizona, and before you know it, we were in the summer, and they started handing out checks to people. And so you'd say, oh, yeah, that's right. It's an election season. And in California, you know, there is really no such thing as, as, a, as a contested election. It's a very, I think, what's the color? Is it, well, it's a heavily Democratic state. Right, a blue state, yeah. It's a blue state, as most of the heavily urban areas are. But that didn't really ever seem to matter. And then all of a sudden, everything seemed to be tinged with this political hue because of the uncertainty of people being sick. And so what that did to um, conventional 
production. You know, it's a it there's a it's a bet noir, which is kind of like the Kobayashi Maru in, in, in Star Trek, yeah. <laughs> in our world. Yeah. Unsolvable problem. Right. So how can you shut down showbiz? Well, you can't. Not these days. There's everybody and his uncle is doing a show, whether it's on a rainy day with a with a with a little um, handheld camera yeah. or a, a two hundred thousand uh, dollar production day. Right. There's so much work. But what it ha what happened was no that all the casting became remote. No longer were you called in to be someone's 1125 and, and you go into the room and then there's four people who look like you and then there's, you know, I mean, it's fine. I've been doing this a long time and competition of any kind is uh, something that has to be understood is really the main, uh, the main cha challenge of the job. Right. But the benefit to the lockdown was it sort of just gave me as an as an actor and i would hope you know those who are properly talented um you know musicians and writers and whatnot it gave them the chance to create their material kind of unimpeded right and that was a great freedom to that um the uh, uh self-tape they call it I'm not, and it's going to be a while before they come back to it because um, it frees up the uh, casting directors, it frees up the uh, right. show, showrunners, you know, and I think probably production was shut down just for a couple of months. It wasn't much. Um, I, and I, I just became very discouraged with the leadership in California, maybe by extension, um, the, the, the rest of the country. You know, we were faced with an obvious challenge. And instead of really rising to the challenge, we became very divisive, divisive. And um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a virtual civil war is what it was. And um, when that happens, unless you are the kind of person who needs to be involved in matters of great importance, but you know, uh, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a politician. I could have been, but I just settled on being an actor, which is yeah. probably damn close. <laughs> yeah, <You know>? exactly. <laughs> I was able, I took care of self. I took care of not myself, of our, our family, right. our, our, my two boys. And my boys are coming, my, my older boy's 30. My younger boy is a senior in, in college now. He, he got lucky and got out of Santa Monica High School in 2019. The class of 2020 was devastated with right. they started canceling i mean the problem so anyway it it was um it was very surrealistic in california yeah. i'm in florida now so i don't know how it was uh then but here we are what over two years what just a little over two years later there are still parts of the country i think who are dealing with the severe um uh, challenges from shutdown you know yeah but it was interesting in this business which is always um, acting and, and, and show well, you know acting has always been a channel for 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 people and i was fortunate that um, once the job opportunities started to come back 
I felt a lot of joy being able to do it. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Were you able to like continue your audiobook production company? Like punch well, yeah, you know, the that? funny thing, yeah, the funny thing is, uh, the, it's, it, that by definition is a, is a, is a remote business. It's right. all digital. And, uh, there are lots of actors and, you know, narrators who set up home studios, you know, with not, not dissimilar to what you have in front of you. Um, and what happened with that is that uh, independent authors started to us. Um, and I would, I just, I, I would assume that they had the time to get into their closet, say, okay, I'll pull out this book. Right. You know, whether it's how I conquered eighth grade or how I rose to, uh, to middle management at one of the world's mm -hmm. worst companies, right. you know, whatever <laughs> it is. Yeah. A lot of people have come to us for that. And so um, we, were, we were fortunate that we were poised, having been, Punch Audio has been around for a little over 10 years now, that we were in the marketplace at a pretty high profile. We were, were easy to find. We're one of the first results when people go looking, how do I speak my book.com? You know, yeah, you come to us. So, you know, it, it, it feels weird to, to have in a way uh, profited. I mean, I, I don't mean financially, but profited personally I, I'm just fortunate that, um, you know, we weren't, that I, that I wasn't really impacted. Right. I wasn't really impacted by the COVID scare. And if I wasn't at age in my early 60s, then I'm wondering, you know, how much of uh, the, our population were really impacted? Yes, I know that there are obviously people who, uh, who were directly impacted. Um, but you take away that. I don't know, maybe it, maybe it would have been just a bad flu season. Maybe there would have been other things that, that, that people would have been able to, to deal with. It just seems, it would seem so wrong that, that the federal government asked to be, and we allowed it, trusted so to, to manage something that really is about a far, as far away from federal supervision as, it, as literally it can be. It's about what's going on in this house in your neighborhood, in your supermarket. And it was, it was sad in a way to see this country um, team up so quickly. Um, not that you had to be for this, the, the, the man who was in the White House or the person who was in the White House or against him. That, there's nothing new about that. But usually whoever is sitting in that chair gets the benefit of the doubt most of the time. And that wasn't happening in the summer of 2020. Every opportunity to, to um, turn, the, uh, turn the light, turn a negative light on, a, on, on, on the federal leadership of the country was taken. And that was a great mistake because what happened was I think we as a people suffered. We still don't, you know, we haven't recovered. Right. We haven't recovered. There is, there is a, there is a, there is a, a lack of leadership going on. Whether, whether you are like the blue or like the red, I don't really even know. Uh, but there, you know, the, there's just no leadership, and we're starting to come back. But the people are, people are coming back. It's not the government. Right. The government shut us down. The people are coming back. And hey, maybe uh, in some small way, those of us who like yourself. Are taking the time just to let you know idiots like me 
spout off, right. then you know we're all doing our part. We're coming, we're coming back, and I'm hopeful that you know we'll, we'll you know I lived through Nixon for gosh sakes. I lived <laughs> through Jimmy Carter for gosh sakes. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we'll just, come back yeah it's just another four years every four years it's going to yeah. seem like it's going to change another clown's going to be in there whether you voted for that person or not it's you know you know i'll tell you the who is getting to be a better and better band that's for damn sure <laughs> <laughs> exactly we won't get fooled again or even if we do it's the same as the old boss right anyway. yeah yeah Right. It's, it's like you know, when Obi-Wan Kenobi, when Obi-Wan Kenobi said, who's more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Obi-Wan. Yeah. <laughs> name I haven't heard in a long time. Yes. L- looking forward to that show. I'll watch that soon. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So how did the, um, the idea for Punch Audio come about? I won a narration contest that was sponsored by Audible. They were launching their independent division, the Audiobook Creation Exchange, which is like a marketplace, a Craigslist where authors uh, and narrators can meet and work on projects together. Um, it, was, it was basically founded as a, as, a, a, as a joint venture, and now it's matured. You can, you can find you know, top class narrators and pay them their union rate, or you can find narrators who are willing to co-venture on a on a book, and it was it, it was a brilliant business plan um, pioneered by a fellow named Jason Ojalvo, who at that time was working at Audible. Don Katz is the founder of Audible, and about I guess fifteen, maybe almost twenty years now, he um, uh, just started to create this audiobook delivery company, which became Audible, and which became a division of Amazon. And then once that had sort of began to find its feet in 2011, they launched this independent division and they were looking for narrators. And I'd been an actor by that time for 30 years and I had never gone near the voiceover market. I probably should have, I was right. I'd, I'd driven a cab, I poured <laughs> drinks at a bar, I yeah. a lot of, done a lot of the other jobs, but you right. know, um, I said, okay, so maybe let's go and do let's do a voiceover. So I went to a class in Burbank, and I lived in uh, Santa. I live in Santa Monica, and so, you know, a five thirty, six o'clock class on a Thursday night in Burbank. It's like three thirty. You start looking at the clock, saying, okay, <laughs> I might as well go over and get a hamburger. And so it was a commitment, and you end up doing these voiceovers. I mean, you do them probably. A lot of people do them. You know, Smith Barney. When it comes to making money, you know, don't go anywhere near us. You know, all of this stuff. You do these things. They're like magazine ads. Right. You do about four or five, six of them, and you know they sound great. And then you got somebody says, "Can I send me your voiceover demo?" And it's ninety seconds of you know, um, okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for flying Southwest Airlines, whatever. And it's ninety seconds, and you sound just like everybody else who does. Yeah. It. Only they get the work because they're already getting the work, and that was fine. The silver lining of that whole process was it just coincided with a, uh, a conference, voiceover conference. It was eight people are doing the little trade shows and stuff. And so you go to that, I, I bought into that. And then I entered the um, audiobook narrator, become an audiobook narrator. And no, I caught a break. Okay. The copy that they wanted was Mark Twain's um, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court or, or one, one of those. Um, it was um, poor Tom standing out front 
around Buckingham Palace, wondering what must, what life must be, and what life must be inside, you know, that kind of thing. And then the other half is, no, Tom, you're never going to be going near that. Now that's where the king lives. Come on now. And no, I want to go. And so it was half English, half American. It was um, perfect because, you know, I'm, yeah. aside from that poor imitation, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm half English. Uh, but when I am performing, or reading, or on a play, or like in Jordan Peele's movie, I'm not playing an Englishman. I'm an Englishman, right? Because that's just me. Yet when I'm a fighter pilot, or an Olympic runner, or a doctor, um, I'm an American. So my 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 a lot of actors are like that, particularly the Australians. Uh, they, 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 Simon Baker, for instance, uh, plays a great American leading man. And so this, and I won the darn thing. I'd never won anything. I think I won a punt, pass, and kick contest when I was 12 once <laughs> right. in, in Palm Springs. And maybe that's only because the other two people couldn't kick that well. But here I was sitting in the, uh, in, in the, in the theater at the Pacific Design Center in LA. And, and now they announced the winner of the Audible New Narrator content. There's an O, and there's an A, there's an X, and there's a hyphen. I go, that's me. And I won. And they gave me a book. And... Um, I started getting calls from other producers. And after about six months of that, I could see that one of the, one, a couple of the producers, one in particular, had a lot of work to do. Right. So, and so I said to him, Bill, late William Dufries was his name, lovely fellow, just passed away at the end of COVID uh, about two years ago now. Um, I said, hey, let me produce some of these for you. I can narrate and I'll do, you know, I will do them. He said, oh, great. And he started giving me six, eight, 10, 12. Um, English titles. And so I got a lot of English actresses and some English actors. And before you know, it was building a stable. I felt like a management company, you know? And um, we haven't stopped since. We produced probably 500 books. I've narrated almost 200. And, you know, we, don't, we can almost, we can do anything. It's, uh, it's simple. It's single track audio. It's simple in the production process, but it requires an attention to detail because you don't right. cover it with music or effects. Yeah. Or, uh, or the 55 bus that's out front, you know. Right. You got to work around it, especially where you are in the city, you know. Yeah, I, I live in Connecticut, so I have like a two-hour commute. So I definitely read some, you know, Punch Audio's read or listened to, I should say. I can't remember the last time I actually read a book because it's all yeah. audio books for me Oh, you now. take what, the North? Um, the, the Metro North, North. Yeah. 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 Metro North, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's super convenient. And, you know, it's like, I think the wave of the future now is it, are these audiobooks i remember even when they first started you had those tapes so you would get like you know maybe like 12 tapes per book you need to lug yeah. those around or then the, yeah. the cds now it's great everything's on your phone you know, i'd say that's that was a it was a wonderful um addition and you know on a production level uh, you realize that the finished product is really compressed because it's a quick download. You can you can download right. a five or six hour book in 45 seconds if you have right. a good signal, right? Yep. And that's a, that's a lot of digital information. So it needs yeah. to be produced at a at a level where it can it can um, withstand the compression mm. and right. the diluting. That's why sometimes you'll you'll hear them. They sound tinny. Right. Uh, you know, it's kind of like um, in the old days uh, using the film, but having the wrong film stock or something. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fun. It's uh, I like producing in a yeah. in a forty four year acting career. I produced two independent movies, and then a twelve year 
audiobook narrator career, I produced five, we produced 500 audiobooks. So, you know, wow. I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and no, serious lack of camera helps too. And a lot of the drama and the vanity right. with the camera. And it's very much a blue collar job um, narrating. You need to be able to read and speak, but like an athlete, you also need to be able to anticipate where the play is going or where the story goes, you know? Yeah. So it's a great job on the technical um, side for an English major or someone who is a, a fan of great literature because they can be, a, whether or not they're a narrator, they can be a producer, they can be a proofer, they can understand the genre, like in acting, the difference between, you know, light comedy and Chekhov, for instance, right. don't ask me what it is, but, you know, there's probably a lot more similarities. I'm sure, there. yeah. But, you know, that's what you go to drama school, so you can have people say to you, yeah. actually, in Elizabethan, you're supposed to say it this way, you know, okay, yeah. okay, great, then why aren't you out there doing, anyway, yeah. that's enough. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I, obviously, I, you're a professional, but I'm sure in all the you know books that you've done, there had to be one or two that just didn't resonate with you, but you still had to, you know, perform to the best of your ability. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, nonfiction books are supposed to be kind of delivered in a in a understated way, right? So you don't have to be um, an expert in the field. Um, you know, I've been uh, I've been fortunate. I did a book uh, uh, last year for Audible or Hachette, I think it was, Climate Chaos. And, you know, I went into that wondering, okay, you know, what are the positions going to be? Yeah. Do I, uh, I now get to, to lend my small talent to this huge subject. And it wasn't defining what, what, climate change means now at all. It was a history book talking about the epochs and the periods in the development of our planet where it's obvious the climate changed and changed dramatically from right. various uh, tree rings and um, uh, records of volcanic disruptions. And I found that to be very enlightening. It, uh, it did say that this petrochemical era we are living in obviously has a cause and effect, but it sort of left me with the feeling in the book that let's not be so um, entitled and arrogant to think that A, it's simply because of us, and B, that we can do anything about it. Right. Because again, it, it is an understanding how powerful nature is. And I, that's an example of something going in which kind of I felt like, okay, don't make a mistake here. And I found myself really being interested and enlightened because of it. And for a college dropout, that's great because I sure didn't get too much schooling after the age of 17. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, I was going to switch over, I guess, to your acting career. And I'm insanely jealous of, of you because you got to kiss on two separate occasions Virginia Madsen in Ironclad. Yeah. Huge crush on her back in the in day. Movie? And yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, it was, yeah, there were there were two kisses on camera in that. Okay, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, good. A, a really yeah. good, you know, a TNT made for TV movie. Uh, you know, fascinating story with the yeah. Merrimack yeah. or the Virginia versus the, the Monitor. Yeah, which, which was really good. Um, 
and I know you've done a couple other like you know war pieces you know uh gods and you know monsters and stuff like that are you like a guard general i'm sorry Uh, that was another movie um are you like a fan of of those like war Uh, war pieces you know story buff well you know um i think uh growing up in movies gone with the wind shenandoah um there's the romanticism of, um, of that civil war period was great. Um, it, it produced, you know, great drama. And um, I found myself when I was a young actor working at, at the Kennedy Center when I was um, 19, I think, in a play, and a play that was going to New York, but we were sort of rehearsing and working it up the Kennedy Center for, and it was Val Kilmer's first job. Mm-hmm out of Juilliard. And I'd been to Georgetown a couple of years before as a student. So now I was back. I liked that area. And one of the things I discovered just by going up to Harper's Ferry was how, which is only, you know, 45 minutes on the train or an hour and 10 minutes up, up, up the road, the immediacy of that area of how, you know, north is this side of the Potomac, south is this side of the Potomac, the battles of Bull Run, or it all depends, is it Battle of Bull Run or is it Antietam? Um, they, were, they, were, they were fought in these neighborhoods. I was from LA, um, which, you know, you, it, it's a huge, how, how consolidated uh, that region was. And to, to, to understand that, uh, you know, in 1861 to 64, these battles were going on like in the next county right? and how immediate it was. And I just felt it was very powerful. And um, so when these opportunities came along, I sort of had an emotional interest in them um, because I felt like I, I got to play in, um, in that sandbox. It was an idealized sandbox. I mean, there's nothing worse than the horror of the Battle of Antietam or the Battle of Shiloh. I mean, anybody who takes the time to understand that and, and can look look past the political implication. Look, war is war might be politics, but not when you're on the ground fighting. You know, right. it, it is it is raw and visceral and real. And to visit some of these battlefields. So when the first one to come along was ironclads. Um, it came after, I think it was right after Pretty Woman, which had been, which had been a big hit, 93. Mm-hmm. And a couple months after that, uh, uh, Turner, TNT, which was around for a while, they cast me opposite Virginia. They had a hard time finding the guy to play him. And um, so I was Catesby Jones, a Virginian. Right. Yes, he wore a gray uniform, but, you know, he was not the cause of he, his cause was not states' rights, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, he was a proud Virginian, okay, and a proud Virginian could live could live half a mile from the border between the North and South. But you know, you ended up being on the losing side. It is important when given that opportunity that you not play it as being on the wrong side, unless of course you are a traitor or a rebel yeah. or you are, or the story is about you. Right. Um, attaching yourself to a larger cause and affecting change. This is not this guy. Catesby Jones was a real guy. He, he, he takes command of them, of the U.S. of the CSS Virginia, 
which is the, uh, it was the USS Virginia, became the Merrimack. Right. He takes command on the day uh, of the battle because the previous day, the captain has taken a bullet. So I got to command the Merrimack in Hampton Roads against the Monitor. And uh, we were actually there in, uh, in uh, Newport News, Hampton Roads. And um, we finished it uh, last couple of weeks was in Atlanta and a warehouse with the miniatures, the models of the, in, uh, the inside. It was a gunship. It's like, you know, the movie Master and Commander. I mean, right. you know, yeah. that's, those are, that, that's a real set, folks. Okay. Yeah. It's probably stage four Pinewood. Right. Uh, or, or, you know, it's a real set. That's, that's wood. Those are, those are cannons. And we had several of them. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing, the reenactors. And uh, when the movie was done, I remember when we met Ted Turner and who was with Jane Fonda at that time, the, uh, they had the premiere in LA. And Ted uh, said that, you know, he loved those miniatures so much. He wanted them. He says, hey, you get me those miniatures. Don't get rid of them. I want them for my desk. Because at that time he was still running CNN. And they right. said, um, sir, you're going to need a bigger desk. They're yeah, about 30 exactly. feet long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, it was it was neat to be a part of that. It was directed by a fellow named Delbert Mann, who, you know, was an Oscar winning director from the late 50s, I think, in a movie called Marty and produced by a couple of old hands. And um, it was a real pot boiler of a script. But, um, you know, they uh, I get along well with the wardrobe, so they let me keep the... Hmm. Uh, uniform so for years we had a halloween costume and then right. um, then i did gods and generals which was the other side yeah a union general burnside you know gone down in history as a bit of a, a bit of a nincompoop but he was a mm. history teacher uh, he was the governor of new hampshire at one time and he was a history teacher and um known for his sideburns and i'd put on i was pretty heavy at that time and uh so i could play that part and that was ron maxwell Again, for Ted Turner. And uh, so I got to do both sides, you know? That was cool. Yeah. Speaking of uh, costumes, did you get to keep your uh, Fantastic Four costume? Well, no, because <laughs> it probably it probably didn't last the shoot. Right. But there were some shirts. Oh, nice. That, yeah. I've been going through some old... Uh, t-shirts making a quilt out of right. them and this was one that was given to us i think when we did a convention we went on the road after the movie did some conventions and stuff um uh, no what i did get from the fantastic four is the uh thing the head the stunt head from the thing which is okay. in a plexiglass box and it's yeah. a picture i have a picture of it on the website and just um, a couple of weeks ago there was an article in the hollywood reporter online and that had a good picture uh, of it so um no, I got a lot of, a lot of wonderful uh, stories and memories of Fantastic Four. But aside from the thing head, I don't think uh, hmm. much right. else has lasted. Yeah. 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 Are, I mean, I, I've I've seen the movie a couple times. Are, are you surprised that people are talking about a movie twenty? What is it? Twenty five years later now? Twenty six? Twenty seven? It was ninety three. We made it. Oh, so, so almost, almost almost thirty years now. Um, 30. that hasn't even officially been released. Yeah, I mean, um, it's strange, you know? It's like having a child when you're a little too young. Um, as long as the child is healthy and keeps living, you're always happy. 
right. about it. But it sure was surprising because I didn't even know I was pregnant then. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whoa, okay. Yeah. That's from that one time. But there was just something about that project that never seemed right. And I think that's the secret of that kind of chemistry because the Fantastic Four are really a dysfunctional group, but they're not mean. Right. They're naive. They're sort of the way we were in that Mad Men era as a country, kind of looking back with rose-colored glasses while people are having two or three martini lunches and driving home, you know? <laughs> now we'd be screaming and yelling. We, we right. let people do that. But so they let us make this movie. And of course, the, the, the conventional wisdom would say, well, it was never meant to be made in the first place. And that's bull crap. Of course, it was meant to be made. I mean, it was, it was the story and it's a well-told story for those who are interested because it occupies a very unique place in Hollywood film lore. It's the movie that got away. Happens a lot to scripts. Let's say Noel Fogelman wrote a really good script about downhill skiing, but there's this other one that Robert Redford's attached, well, not Robert, that Mark Wahlberg's attached to and his right. cousin's written it. So they might buy your script and you might think, hey, great. They bought it, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, my movie's going to be made. And, right. they, and I go, ah, yeah, great. It's going to be good. We're going to have lunch. And yeah. then they cancel lunch before you know it. You know, you, but you can still get your $200,000 for the script. But they're going to buy it. Yeah. So you don't sue them because they rip yeah. you off. Right. Right? Okay, or whatever. Yeah. So the film of the Fantastic Four, whether it was meant to be made or not, it wasn't going to be made well because it just was a rushed production and the technology wasn't there right. to do anything more than rudimentary yeah. effects, which again, in a storytelling way for the origin story of the Fantastic Four, you know, you can get away with that if yeah. there are other elements that work. And the, uh, it's, 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 uh, the test the time has proven that the film has, has withstood the test of time, partly because when they got around to doing it again, 20 years later, with the world as their oyster, yeah, it wasn't, you know, there was, yeah, I don't know, but why? Well, you know, it's hard to do a movie with four leads. Okay, well then try seven. Yeah. And put Steve McQueen and Yul Brynner and right. Charles Bronson in it and call it yeah. the Magnificent Seven. I mean, come on. Yeah. What do you mean? It's hard to do a movie with four leads. This Fantastic Four is simple. Reed Richards is the lead character, just like in Johnny Quest, Reese Banyan was the lead yeah, exactly. character. Yeah. Haji and his little dog, okay? He's the lead character. And you put everyone else around him, and he makes mistakes. The reason he stretches himself is because he's trying to do too much. Right. And that's, you know, that's light comedy, it's light drama. It all doesn't have to. Colossus itself is this, you know, nebulous thing. It's more about trying to find a place in the world. And I'm so glad that, according to Ryan Parker over at The Hollywood Reporter with John Krasinski, they seem to have landed in a comfortable place for the, uh, for the project or Fantastic right. Four. And that, again, is like, okay, well, that's, that's, that's my baby. Now he's 35 yeah. years old. He's slightly right. wounded. But I hope they, you know, I look forward to a, a happy continuation. I don't think it's going to be the end. No. We had a hell of a story to tell because of what happened afterwards, uh, you know, after we went on to pub publicize the film. And um, 
much, much more of a poignant story than if the film had just come out and been relegated yeah. like it was worse than Captain America. Well, okay, whatever, you know. Um, the Marvel, gosh, when I, I remember in New York City, I'm 93, I think it was, we were doing a Jim Hanley, Jim Hansen's universe, Jim Hanley's universe, the old Oh, yeah, yeah, the no, that's true. They, they had me and Michael Bailey Smith, who played Ben Grimm, right. over. We did personal appearance, showed the trailer, signed some autographs, signed some comics, got in the paper. And I was at a Knicks game, I think, or a, yeah, yeah, Knicks game. Uh, two people uh, uh, next to me worked at Marvel. Before you know it, I was over in the bullpen <laughs> meeting, the, uh, meeting the president of Marvel at a time when they were going bankrupt. Right. And they, and they didn't really know anything about this movie. movie. Oh, yeah? Oh, okay. Because, you know, it was, they really weren't involved. And I thought, okay, how wonderful now that that company um, is such a major player. Yeah. It, it's, it's incredible. It's not the same company. It was. It's in the, I mean, it's, it's, it's huge. And in a way, I think they, they will... They, uh, when they understand a bit, I hope they can crack the code for Fantastic Four. Because um, until they do, they're going to keep saying that our little one was the best ever. And that's just ridiculous. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so true. Because I, I didn't see the last one because it just looked looked awful. And, you know, I probably should. Is that Miles, the Miles, Miles, Miles Teller, Teller and Michael B. Yeah, Jordan? Yeah. Michael B. Jordan's great and everything. But still, it just yeah. didn't look. Was he Johnny Storm? Yeah. But then the the one I think I, I always butcher his name uh, in, in Grenfell, the one who played uh, Reed in the original in, or the in second, Griffith. yeah, yeah. The Welshman, yeah, yeah. But you see, they didn't make the part the leading role. No, they they made, made it they just made, Alba. Uh, they made this thing. They tried to make Michael Chick and him too. Role. Yeah, right. And the uh, Mark Frost was a friend of mine when he was in Hollywood. He was one of the right. He was the co-writer on it. Yeah. those sort of things are written by the studio. I'm afraid, which is it, which is which is a bit of a challenge. But I just remember seeing the film, and in real one, they have Ben Grimm on a bridge um, saving people from a traffic mishap or cars and trucks. But he's caused the traffic mishap. Okay. And I remember saying to my wife at the time, and sure, she has no memory of it whatsoever because who cares? <laughs> yeah. You can't do that. You cannot be a hero if you've sown the seeds right. of your own heroism by, a, by doing a destructive act. And so they were saying, well, Ben Grimm is a challenged fellow. Fine, let him be a challenged fellow, but let it be this, a subplot or let, don't lead off with, with that. The action set piece was something that he subconsciously right. put into action. Yeah. And you know, that's kind of like what they did with the franchise. They subconsciously messed it up by trying to be too clever, you know. It's like Star Trek, you know. Uh, and I think sometimes when I look at Reed, they say that I was a bit like Shatner. I mean, people thought William Shatner was yeah. a joke, but you know, at Lawrence Olivier didn't. He was a young man, a Canadian mm -hmm. actor. I did a play with his wife Marcy Lafferty okay. in, the, in the late in the late eighties. Um, she played Vivian Lee, and I got to know her well and. Bill was around. William Shatner was a hell of a well-liked uh, young Canadian actor. He was. Yeah. And Lawrence, Lawrence Olivier wanted him to come to the National Theater and become a Shakespearean actor, and he ended up getting work in TV. 
yet you look at Chatner and he's still going strong. What's he own half a price line or something? You know, yeah. like, <laughs> right. You know, unlike yeah. Jeff Bezos, he said the only thing wrong with Jeff Bezos was flying into space was that he had to come back. Right. People were happy when Bill Shatner came back, he, right? Yeah. But they used to think that the way he was, that was, you know, yeah. it was a joke and it wasn't, it isn't. You be who you are, okay? Right. You know, and and um, that's my little, that's what I've learned, I think, from the, the whole Reed Richards saga, which has gone on 30 years too long. But it's the gift that keeps on giving in yeah. a way. So there's a lot of psychological um, um, currency there. Yeah. Now, have, have you seen uh, John Krasinski play? I was, I haven't no, seen No, I was, I, I just going on, I, I was looking at the movies yesterday and yeah. um, down in, I'm gonna, yeah, I wanna, I wanna see it. Well, I like uh, Cumberbatch, he's good. When he, yeah. uh, when he's expressive, Right. I like him. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, sometimes when he's low key, I'm wondering, okay, what's all the fuss? Like in Power of the Dog, okay. But, you know, um, I like it when he's expressive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I have to, I mean, cause, I would have been surprised knowing that Reed Richards was in it, but it, you know, it got spoiled, but oh, well, so everyone listening, you know, I'll, I'll put a little disclaimer before the episode. So everyone knows not to listen to yes. this part. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, one more, one more question like uh, about the movie. And I know Stan Lee kind of waffled about it. He was for it. Right. And then he kind of was, was against it a, a little bit. Now, I heard he was because I, I saw the documentary Doomed, and I, I think you you mentioned oh, you did yeah, yeah. and I, yeah. I think you mentioned yeah. that he even brought donuts to the set. <laughs> well, he did. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that the whole of Marvel was in a situation where they needed they needed a win with right. this film, and it didn't really matter if it was going to be a Roger Corman movie or not at the time. So uh, those who were sort of representing Marvel, or I don't know if Stan was really that involved at the time, but he certainly um, is, a, is a figurehead. It was easy for him to be supportive. It was easy for him to be friendly. You know, he has that charisma. When he walks in, everybody wants to meet him, right? And I think uh, when it progressed so that the story changed, it was probably, he probably needed to sort of be on the right side of, of the new story. Yeah. Which was, ah, you know, again, but weren't you nice? Didn't you bring donuts? Oh, no, I don't mm -hmm. remember. I mean, you know. I right, mean, of course, yeah. So it's a shame, but, but you know, Stan Lee was a fighter. He was a, he was a scrapper, you know? I don't know uh, if he was meant to be a politician. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, he's been an inspiration to enough people to be able to get a pass if he sort of changed his tune on a little Fantastic Four yeah. film. Um, besides now, everyone else seems to have caught up with him because, you know, people are giving it a break now anyway. Right, absolutely. And you guys are working on an audio a book about it? Oh yeah, we're just finishing. I've got Craig Nevius, who was the screenwriter um, for the original script coming in, I think tomorrow to, to he has two chapters in the book. And that's going to be the finishing touches. So this book will be out on Audible. It's called Forsaken, The okay. Rise and Fall of, no, The Rise and Aftermath of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, oh, written great. by a uh, professor named Nesbitt, William Nesbitt in the Midwest. 
and you know, it's 40 people you know, telling the same story, um, but it is a chronicle of, 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 you know, it's like if you could have a history of the Titanic, <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, it suddenly resurfaced, here it right. is, and it's a beautiful audiobook, and these are people who are really on, how do yeah. you know, well, because they were spitting up salt water, I mean, right. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we got um, a lot of the cat. Joseph Culp okay. played Dr. Doom. He did his part. And Jay Underwood, who's wonderful, who's retired from being an actor and a right. wonderful actor from when he was a young fellow. He's a minister in a, in, a, in a church in Burbank. So he came in and hell, he's a good reader. So he, he did a lot of um, chapters of other people as well. Rebecca Staub did her part. And so we have uh, out of about the 35, 40 stories, including Stan Lee and Roger Corman, we have five of the cast members and a couple of other friends, other actors of mine. So we sort of pieced it up. I ended up doing a lot of them, but I thought it was very interesting because it was illuminating to me to see the point of view from um, like special effects department, right. the art department and, and, and whatnot. So it's a deep dive, but the great thing about audiobooks, as you know, from uh, when you were listening to them on the Metro North is, you know, there's no test at the end. You don't have to listen to all of it. You can skip yeah. through it. Right. And it's, you know, it's like a, it's like going to Golden Corral. If you want to if you want to really get your money's <laughs> worth, you better eat one of everything. But yeah, you, you will die if you do. Right. <laughs> you know, so yeah. pick your pick your plate and, and put in some yeah. vegetables. So, um, right. Yeah. But no, it's great. We're going to I think that's kind of like. I don't know where else the fantastic story can be told now. It's been yeah. movie a documentary about the movie, yeah. a book about the movie, right. an audio book about the book. Okay, well, okay, Punch Audio yeah. presents. Right. You know, Forsaken. Yeah. <laughs> unless they want to do- earbud near you. Yeah, unless they want to do like a limited series, like a docudrama about it or something like podcast. that. Podcast. Yeah. Podcast. Yeah. You do a podcast, don't you? Isn't this yeah, well, yeah. Uh, let's do it. I'm, yeah, I'm trying to, I actually going to speak with Rebecca and uh, Kat Green soon. Oh, good. Yeah, Kat, yeah. Did her, Kat did her part. Kat's a real pro. She comes from a producing, writer producing family. Yeah. So she was cool. You know, the book, it's a funny little story. Um, the book is question and answer. It's the, uh, the it's um, Nesbitt, the author, did these interviews with everybody. Right. Right? And the question was, tell me, how did you get involved in Fantastic yeah. Four? And in the book, it's black print. Right. Then the answer goes on for a page and a half. And it's the same <laughs> way. I really didn't know, but it was a job, you know. Yeah. Well, everybody, you know, everybody comes in and they all say to me, some people say, do I read the questions? I go, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, how do you read them? You know, just kind of personalize any way you want, yeah. you know, just do it. You're an actor. Suddenly right. you need a script. Kat was lovely. I'd sent her to a studio in Studio City because uh, it was closer to where she lived. And so it was unsupervised. Kat didn't read the questions. Oh, no. She said, no, no, no. So somebody else to be reading the questions. I got, yeah. uh, okay, there isn't a somebody else. <laughs> right. And so we were left with Kat's uh, poignant answers, but they were just, there was no context. And so I had to go in. I and looped in the questions, questions. And I think I did right. it like, you know, as, a, as Albert Einstein or something just for fun. So <laughs> yeah. tell me, Ms. Dean, how did you get involved? You know, <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. So, yeah. Kat, if and when you hear it, you're going to go, oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. She, like, you know, she makes a yeah. producer decision. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, yeah. She forgot that this was a Roger Corman movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Many years ago, she she wanted to bury that. I'm sure. So this was a Roger Corman audio book. Right. This was an Alex Hyde yeah. White audio book. And where right. did I learn? Yeah. Yeah. You read the questions. Can yeah. You do a little. Do, do it in a different voice. Right. Yeah. 
before, before I let you go, I have to ask about uh, Last Crusade and um, another role, which, I mean, we didn't see you, or I shouldn't say your face, but you played a real okay. pivotal role. See me now. This, this reminds me of it. Let me, let me try to get it right here. Yep. Junior, count to 20 in Greek. Yep. That was the audition. Right. That was the second audition. Mike Fenton, Universal Casting Director, called me in. They needed somebody to be Sean Connery, only at age 30, for three days in Colorado, which kind of meant they were going to pay you 1100 bucks. Right. And there was an agent I knew named Marion Rosenberg in LA, who was an English agent and um, well-respected. And sometimes casting directors are just going to call people up and say, hey, you know, do you have anybody or do you know anybody? Yeah. And she said, you know, Alex Hyde-White would be good for this. And Mike goes, oh yeah, Alex Hyde-White, okay. Is he English or whatever, you know? <laughs> So I went in to Universal, and this is Mike Fenton and Steven Spielberg. I mean, this is George Lucas. This is yeah. as big as you get. And I'm sitting, and says, says, great, Alex, thanks coming. Let's do it. And I go, Junior, count to 20 in Greek. Mm -hmm. Let he who illuminated me for this illuminate me. That's it. Great. OK, terrific. Thanks for coming in. Yeah. Goodbye. OK? And about a week later, my agent calls up and says, um, they want to see you again. But Mike has some uh, instructions. So go on. Same thing. And he says, Alex, great. Stephen loves you for this, but he needs to see your jib. Okay. Was his words. He goes, okay. So can you turn around? Junior. And they call me up. Week, 10 days later, he says, okay, you're flying to Alamosa, Colorado. And I waited and I was there for three nights. Harrison Ford was there. George Lucas was there. The wonderful, ethereal, majestic, talented Rupert Phoenix was there. Not to mention the first class crew and right. Spielberg himself. And it was the kind of job that my agents said, oh, don't go doing that. You know, it's too small. Yeah. And it ended up being just such a peak experience, you know. And we were waiting for the sun to set because the, the star of that shot wasn't going to be me or even River or the dog yeah. or the long tracking shot. It was going to be the sun that's right. 94 million miles away is setting through the window that they built out. And I'm sitting just like this with you with Steven for about 15, 20 minutes, just talking about close encounters. And, you know, he's a yeah. kid, he loves Hollywood. Right. And my dad a bit, and it was just lovely. And then we had about six, eight minutes to get the shot. Cause he said, guys, we're either gonna get this now and we were like in a little black tent looking out the windows to, to control the light. Otherwise we're back at the same time tomorrow because that sun's gonna be there. You know? Exactly. <laughs> and the whole experience, it wasn't about filmmaking. It wasn't about that shot. It was about this wonderful sort of indescribable apparatus that can leave these memories in, 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 from, from work like that. Right. And it's really formed the basis of what ended up being my, uh, my memoir called In the Volume. That phrase comes from the last time and the third time I worked with Stephen on Tintin 
It was his first foray into motion capture. Right. And it's like a little handheld, almost like a VR um, screen that you have on, that he's moving around. And we're in Tintin, it's like a basketball court with all these cameras. And he's like moving it and trying to get over mm. here and stuff. You know, yeah. and they say, sir, no, 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 you can just do the hands. He, oh, okay. Right. He's so old school <laughs> yeah. that, you know, he was playing with toys that he was unfamiliar with. And this was Steven Spielberg at this point of his career. Yeah. And that just tells you that, you know, what a gift. It's, uh, you know, everybody knows he's Peter Pan and he makes those kind of movies that, right. that you know, you, you, you never grow. You know, those movies are not about growing old they're about growing no. up yeah you know and um in the volume was the phrase that i got from that because when they said they used to say okay all right alex can you step out of the shot now that now they'll say yeah. alex can you move over here because i was done with my part they go why well because you're in the volume <laughs> and it's a, it's a it's a finite amount of data yeah. that is getting scooped up by the cameras and so right. if they if, if they don't want your little uh, yeah. silver balls in there if you're not in the shot so I, 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 I'm calling my book in, in the volume, my, my, uh, my life in film and TV. That's great. When's and, that coming uh, out? Uh, it'll be out in uh, July, July, August, right around the same time that uh, Jordan, Peele, Jordan Peele's movie, Nope, comes out. I have a little, I have a small little English right. part. Very similar to the work that I'd done in, in Stevens films. I did, not only was it the uh, back of my hand uh, and, and head in, in Indiana Jones and yeah. asking to be out of the, step out of the shop in uh, Tintin, <laughs> It yeah. was, uh, I played the divorce lawyer in Catch Me If You Can with, right. um, with Leonardo. With, uh, and I know you got to go because you have somebody important next up, I'm sure. But the wonderful um, return to uh, the Spielberg set was, was highlighted by Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio, playing about age 17, running away from his home in Catch Me If You Can. And it was River Phoenix all over again. It was the same yeah. energy, same look, and it was it was uncanny uh, how wonderful um, those two experiences were, Noel. Right. And they were they were day jobs, okay? They yeah. were. I mean, you travel and your wardrobe. And nowadays, you yeah. COVID test and all that. But it's a commitment, right? But on the set for a day, Indiana Jones, hmm. Catch Me If You Can, yeah. and Tintin. Yeah. Three days out of a 44-year career. And I just equate them to, in order to stand on Mount Everest and Kilimanjaro and K9 mm. on the top, you've got to spend about yeah. 30 or 40 years as a mountain climber in order to have right. those yeah. three peak experiences, you know? Yeah. Now, Stephen, like, because that was like 88, well, I guess, when you filmed Last Crusade. 80, how, 89, I think, yeah. Yeah. How much, like, difference was he? Like his style, his directing, you know, style, just his just attitude, you know, the same. I think he, he kind of like when I when you when when you act with Richard Gere, um, it's just so natural that um, were he to be any different, you'd be worried. Right. Stephen, in my in my experiences with him, it's those around him. He had greater number of assistants, and it was harder to. To, to to get to him, uh, you know, he he became like you know the the vice president of everything. Uh, mm. But but um, as far as his instinct, it was three, all three times when he's in the sandbox, he's playing, you know. Right. And I think that that's what he really loved. There was a period mm. there when he was making like Amistad and and the War of the Worlds, and there was he was like always making a movie for like five or six years, about 10, 12 years ago. 
And it was like, well, working so much. And it must, he must have just enjoyed the actual process. Right. It's almost like you're being away from the real world, you know? He has such a keen eye. And of course, he, every, every crew member in the business wants to work with him. So of course. He, he gets wonderful cinematographers mm. and, uh, you know, and Jordan uh, reminds me very much now yeah. of that same right. dynamic. Um, Universal is, <clears throat> is, is backing him, is going to promote his work. And they're lucky to have him, just like, you know, Sid Scheinberg and Wasserman and Universal were mm. lucky to champion Spielberg back right. in like the 76 when he was walking on the lot saying hi to Scotty, pretending yeah. he had an office. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> come on. Right. Um, but Jordan is very much this yeah. uh, works that same way. I yeah. think Jor Jordan's probably more of a writer in terms of initiating the actual right. work. But on the set, very combination of very hands-off, but always very in control. It's yeah. just, you know, he's such a good people person. Right. I mean, get out. I mean, like that just came out of nowhere. And that was just like brilliant. It really was. I was up at Sundance when that was a sneak peek at the midnight screening at the Egyptian theater and the sneak peeks, you don't, you, you never know what it is. Right. And it was, it was get out. And I said that, to, told that to Jordan on the set and he goes, Oh yeah, God, that night I'm standing out in the snowstorm at two 30 in the morning at yeah. the Egyptian theater after the screening, reading the reviews and he goes, Oh no, he said like variety gave it a bad review. Right. Said, you know, this is Jordan Peele. This is get out. This is yeah. Sundance. Yet he's standing in the snow reading a bad review. So, you know, is yeah. this the best business in the world or what? No, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody gets into this business because they want to be a critic. They all want to be writers or directors or actors. Or right. Yeah. yeah. Or even now producers, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think you have to produce. I mean, look yeah. at I mean, the audio books. There's so much and it's so easy to make. Technically, it's so simple to make film now, short films or whatever. You yeah. can do it, you know. Um, that, that you need to think of yourself as a producer of content. Right. Um, you, you need to take responsibility. Um, and if you can act and if you want to act and you should act or you don't know somebody who can do it better than you, then you do it. Yeah. But it's very rare. The Safdie brothers are making some good films and I think they appear in them every once in a while. But, um, you know, interesting to see because there's no one more qualified to play a cameo in his films than Jordan Peele. Right, you know? yeah. Uh, but I don't think he's done that. Uh, I, I don't think he's in these films unless he just puts himself in like a Hitchcock crowd shot or something. Yeah. Whereas people like Warren Beatty and Costner, whatnot, right. you almost you, these projects they couldn't have anyone else in them in a way. You know, yeah. you, can't, you can't you can't see Heaven Can Wait or Reds without that see, Warren Beatty in the lead. You know. Right. Yeah. Or Dances with Wolves without Costner. Right. You know? Who's he, he going to get? Jim Brolin? Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know? Right. Why? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's there I, anyway. Yeah, exactly. You meant to put him in. Yeah. I guess like Tarantino would be the other one where you have a cameo in, in his movies. But yeah, but Tarantino is such an oddball and such a goof. That, yeah. You know, yes. I think Tarantino shows you how easy it is to act if you just have courage and just be yourself. Yeah, yeah so exactly. Funny. Right. He's funny. Yeah. He's a fast talker. He's a wise guy. He, he plays himself you know. in every movie in the camera. Yeah, he plays himself. He's changed yeah. the name. It's yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. But I um I love all your work and I'm looking forward to the book. I'm looking forward to seeing the movie and your memoirs. So you gotta you got a busy few months coming ahead of you. Well, you know, I, I yeah, you started off with the last couple of years, and you know, A, I didn't die. Um, my mom passed oh, away last 
last, sorry uh, last summer. But, you know, yeah, she was mid-80s and she went into a hospital and didn't come out. And it wasn't really COVID, but, you know, um, so things happen. But um, the last couple of years have, you know, I guess there's a phrase, you sort of strap yourself to the mast or you batten down the hatches and that kind of thing. You know, there was no choice. Right. Uh, we had to sort of um, turn inward and just suffer the storm. And in the midst of that, some wonderful career opportunities have, have come my way. And everything goes in cycles. If you're lucky, you get out of the down cycle, although there's no guarantee that I feel um, re rejuvenated. Um, um, there are opportunities now that I'm very thankful for. A lot of them have to do with you know, I guess who I was 30 years ago when I was a young actor, just teeing it up and scratching, trying to, trying to grab work and Reed Richards came along, you know? I now, I'm qualified to tell that story. And as a result, I've also qualified to, to tell a lot more stories. And so that's where the impetus for my book came because it's not, you see, most biographies are about one person who are famous for something, you know? Right. Um, um, Jennifer Gray from Dirty Dancing. Okay, great, that's fine. Yeah. But I'm not really famous for one thing. And um, I've been to a lot of wonderful places, a lot of interesting films that might resonate with a bunch of different people. And yes, I have behind the scenes stories, but it's almost like Forrest Gump in a way. Hmm. It wasn't so, it was Forrest's journey is the film. And that's what in the volume means to me. Hmm. My journey in this business, uh, I think is worth, chronicling is worth telling because it's very much a journey of America in the 80s and 90s. And I don't have to qualify it. Were we innocent then? Are we jaded now? It doesn't really matter. We, we, we survived. Right. And there's, there's enough perspective there. And as you may have gathered by now, I have no trouble spinning a yarn. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, if I get the punctuation right, that'll help. But uh, it's just been a very, it's been a, it's been a, um, um, a rather surprisingly prolific period for me, and uh, and I'm look. I hope it. I hope it continues. I feel. I feel. I feel more worthy. I suppose now, uh, as an actor, you know, you start out. Gene Hackman mentioned that one of the stories is um, Gene Hackman on the Merv Griffin show, and was asked, "What's the secret of success of the French Connection?" Said the his answer was the second ten years. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. What's that mean? It means that you got to hang in there. Right. You know, sometimes you get hit by pitch a lot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so don't swing at everything. Exactly. Stand a little further away. Yeah. Whatever. Use a lighter bat. Right. You know, don't be a home run hitter. Yeah. I'm a get single on base. hitter. Yeah. They, think they call me up to move the to, to move River Phoenix runner. along. Right. To move Leonardo DiCaprio along. Yeah. To move Daniel Kalua along. They call me up but they put a jersey on me and they give me a cup of coffee and I get my major league baseball pension. Okay. I'm a singles hitter. Exactly. All right. I don't stand there and wait. No, that was a ball. Yeah. You know, so it's been fun. And I've played a, a, a few, not my share of lead roles. When I was younger, I played some lead roles, but I kind of feel if something substantial were to come my way now, like, you know, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman would get these, great parts and yet he started out as a sort of an oddball character actor right. once in, once in a while the definition of 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 lead changes mm -hmm. to accommodate right. the person and you know um uh, i i'd love to uh, i'd love to uh, be able to tackle something again like i did catesby jones yeah 
uh, with that level of passion uh, when I was younger um, on, the, on the Merrimack or, or um, the fighter pilot and Top Gun for TV, Dave Raleigh and Supercarrier or, or Reed again. I'd love yeah. to work on a script that really required some, mm-hmm. some prep. Yeah. Right. Until then, I'll just stick with the audiobooks. I like I said before, I appreciate your time. I'm a fan of yours well, quite some time. Yeah. Well, thank you, Noel. It's it's Best nice of luck. you to give to give um, to give a voice to all of your subjects and uh, you know nostalgia, um, the '80s, the '90s. You know, 